morning. Uh, if you're new here, um, I'm a member here at uh, Covenant Hope, not the usual preacher. Ronnie has the week off, but I'm excited to uh, share God's word uh, with you. I've always found um, the story of Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus in the temple to be a bit mysterious. What's going on here? When I was assigned the text, I thought, okay, uh, I really have to deal with it now. So I'm excited. I'm excited after studying it and excited to share uh, what God has for us. So before we get started, let's pray. Father, as we come, we long to be people that are shaped by your word. God, we long to see what Jesus has done more clearly and we desperately need our hearts changed and so I, I pray to that end this morning as we open your word would you speak to us in Jesus name amen so as we look at this passage uh, this morning I think there are I see two themes um, that I would like to hit on uh, this morning. There are two sections to our passages. The first is the account with Simeon and Anna, and the second is with uh, Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple. And in both of these sections, I believe we see the following two themes. The mission of Jesus, theme one, and marveling at Jesus, theme two. We might word that in another way. We see what Jesus does, and we see how people respond. And what we're going to see is that these two themes here in our passages also run through the rest of the book of Luke. And as we continue to make our way in our study through the book of Luke, keep these themes in your mind. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two themes in our passage, and we're also going to zoom out and kind of show that Luke intends for us to see each of these two themes as we walk through the passage in the rest of his gospel. And then we're going to ask, what does this mean for us? How can we apply this? So the first theme is the mission of Jesus. In the first section with Simeon and Anna, we see Luke highlight two things. We see, number one, devoted parents, and number two, divine proclamations number one devoted parents we see several instances of devotion on the part of mary and joseph in this passage in verses 22 through 24 notice in each of these three verses how the law of the lord is highlighted verse 22 according to the law of moses verse 23 as it is written in the law of the lord verse 24 according to what is said in the law of the lord the same language occurs again in Luke 2.27 when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And then again in verse 39, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. And even in verse 41, the second passage, the second section, we see Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. We learn two things, at least, from Mary and Joseph's devotion to the law of the Lord. Number one, it shows us the kind of home Jesus grew up in. We may not have information regarding Jesus' childhood, 
But I do think these verses show us that Jesus grew up in a very Jewish home, a home with parents committed to the law of the Lord. Luke later is going to highlight in verse 40 that Jesus grew and became strong. And this is the environment that he grows up in to do that. But secondly, and more importantly, Luke's emphasis on Mary and, devo Mary and Joseph's devotion to the law is intended to show us that even as a baby, Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that was required in the law. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The emphasis of obedience to the law of Moses in our passage is ultimately about Jesus' fulfillment of the law. In Luke 2.22, listen to this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of the Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Luke 2.26, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. One commentator I read put it well, what is at stake is not Mary's purification, but rather the mission of Jesus. God gave Jesus devoted Jewish parents that who would ensure that their firstborn son would be wholly devoted and dedicated to the Lord, and that nothing in the law would be transgressed concerning him. But second, we see divine proclamations. While Jesus' parents were rightly focused on the needs of the present, we see two other people here in our passage who are focused on the future and who this baby will become. First, there's Simeon. We aren't explicitly told this, but it appears that he's quite old. And he gets revelation from the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And just try and imagine how amazing this news would be to Simeon. Jews had been waiting for the Messiah to appear for literally thousands of years. And it's revealed to Simeon that he would actually be privileged to see this long-awaited Messiah in person. And what Simeon says about this baby isn't just his own thoughts or imagination. No, it comes from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought him into the temple so that he could see the Lord's Christ with his very own eyes. And we see Simeon, through the revelation of the Spirit, testify to what this baby will accomplish in the future. Simeon calls him God's salvation in verse 30. Then in verse 32, we see that this salvation will be for both Jews and non-Jews, or Gentiles. This child will bring salvation for all the peoples of the earth. He will truly have global impact. And Simeon, rejoicing over what will become of Jesus, essentially says, Lord, I'm ready to go and depart from this earth since I've seen in person the long-awaited Messiah who's going to bring salvation for all peoples. The second figure we see in the temple speaks of Jesus as Anna. And though we don't have specific words she spoke, we see that she thanks God for this child and that she spoke of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna's target audience shows us 
bringing redemption to God's people is part of what Jesus' mission will be in bringing salvation to all peoples. That's the mission of Jesus in our first section. For the second part of our passage, after these incredible events in the temple, Mary and Joseph return home, and Luke fast forwards 12 years into the futures into the future to see another instance of Jesus in the temple in verses 41 to 52. In this section, Jesus stays behind when Mary and Joseph head back home. And after realizing Jesus wasn't in their company, Mary and Joseph head back and after three days they see Jesus sitting amongst the teachers in the temple. And Mary then seems to maybe rebuke Jesus for not being able to locate him. And this could look dishonoring on the part of Jesus, but I believe Jesus' response to Mary is helpful for us understanding this interaction. Jesus asks Mary, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be in my father's house. Some of your translation would say, did you not know that I must be amongst my father's business. That's communicating essentially the same thing. To be in the father's house is to be about his business. And we see that already at 12 years old, Jesus possesses an awareness that he was the Messiah and had a divine calling on his life. And the commentators that I consulted all agree that Jesus' age in this passage is significant. In Jesus' day, and even still today, when Jewish children turn 13, they have a celebration for that child called a bar mitzvah, which literally means son of the commandment. And in that, the child's advancement into adulthood is acknowledged and celebrated. But prior to turning 13, when the child turns 12 years old, in preparation for the upcoming bar mitzvah year, when he makes this transition, the child undergoes an intense year of training and discipleship from his father in which the father walks his 12-year-old son through learning the father's trade and how to handle the affairs of the house. In other words, being about the business of the father. Knowing this background, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus responds in the way that he does to Mary by telling her that he had to be in his father's house and about his father's business. For although he had an earthly father figure in Joseph, we've seen in previous weeks in Luke, Joseph is not his biological father. God is his father. And Jesus here is doing exactly what he should be doing at 12 years old. He's learning and growing in the affairs of his father's house. And it is not without accident or coincidence that on both sides of this second section, in our passage, we see Jesus growing. Luke 2.40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke 2.52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We see Jesus doesn't coast or turn on cruise control in his life during the period between his birth and public ministry. He was living life intentionally with the aim of fulfilling his divine calling. Hebrews 5.8 says, 
although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Just because Jesus is fully God doesn't eliminate his experience as being fully human. Jesus learned and grew and increased in wisdom and knowledge exactly in the same ways that we would. It says he's listening and asking questions. Knowing this, was it reasonable for Jesus to expect Mary to have an awareness of his need to be in his father's house and be about his father's business at the temple? Absolutely. In Luke's gospel alone, we've seen Mary be visited by an angel and conceive as a virgin and be told that she will be called, that he will be called the son of the most high. And last week we saw all the shepherds heard in, uh, from the angels. We saw that they went to Mary and Joseph and Luke tells us specifically in 2.29, Mary treasured what the shepherds told her in her heart and she pondered what she had been told. And even in our passage this morning, after Simeon gave his prophecy about Christ's future, we see in verse 33 that both Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about him. The prior passages in Luke's gospel show us that Mary and Joseph knew how special this child was and that this child was going to have a mission like no one else. So why the confusion? In verse 50, Neither Mary nor Joseph understand Jesus' questions. This is the first of several instances in Jesus' life where he will speak plainly about his mission, but no one's going to understand what he's saying. I believe what's happening here in this exchange is that Jesus is operating at an entirely different level. He sees what is most important and necessary when no one else does. Jesus possesses an understanding of his calling that no one else sees at his time, including Mary and Joseph, despite all that was told to them about their son. And in addition to this, Luke wants, us, uh, Luke wants to show us that Jesus' calling and mission did, does not nullify his earthly commitments and responsibilities. Immediately after this, in verse 51, Jesus goes back to Nazareth and was submissive to them, which shows it's not in his character to be a rebellious preteen. So was Jesus being dishonoring or disobedient to his parents? No. He was pursuing with the utmost focus and intentionality his goal and mission that no other individual in human history has ever had or ever will. What Simeon has prophesied, Jesus is following. In both sections, we see the mission of Jesus. In the first, it's about what this child will accomplish. And in the second, it's about Jesus actively pursuing this mission, even at 12 years old. We might say that his birth narratives could be summarized as mission started, and that the narrative of Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple could be summarized as mission in progress. Now, regarding this theme, Jesus' mission, I want to zoom out as we continue through Luke's gospel each Sunday morning. I think what we're going to see is this determination and focus from Jesus to reach his goal and accomplish his mission. And what I've seen is just going through studying for the sermon, Luke seems to highlight this even more than the other gospel writers. 
I'll just focus on statements that are unique to Luke, that no other gospel says. Luke 9:51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. No other gospel says that. In Luke 13, uh, 31 through 33, this is what it says. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus is not faced. He's set his face to Jerusalem. Listen how feisty he gets. Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And in Luke 17, this is the account of Jesus describing the destruction of the temple and or the end times. It's the only section in the other Gospels. This is the only time that this statement occurs in that account. But first, Luke 17, 25, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And in Luke 22, 44, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, Lord, take this cup from me, but nevertheless your will, not mine. And it says, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What we see in our passage this morning is what we will continue to see Jesus do throughout the rest of this book. He will not be deterred from his goal. We see in our passage this morning the mission of Jesus. But the second thing that we see is marveling at Jesus. Again, in both sections of our passage, we see the same response to Jesus by all who encounter him. In the first section, we see Simeon extolling God for allowing him to see the Messiah before he dies. This makes him so overjoyed that there's nothing else this world has to offer him. Now he can depart in peace. And in verse 33, after Mary and Joseph hear Simeon's proclamation about Jesus, God's word tells us that they marveled at what was said about him. Then we see Anna give thanks to God and start sharing the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. And what is it that causes all of this praise and marveling and thanksgiving to erupt in the hearts of Simeon, Mary, Joseph, and Anna? It's all tied to what will become of this child. Luke 2.33 And his father and mother, mother marveled at what was said about him. Then in the second part of our passage, we see Jesus among all the teachers of the day. And, you know, this is the Passover. You know, Israel's finest theologians were there. And verse 47 tells us that all, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. They're speechless. And in the next verse, Mary and Joseph arrive. And when they see Jesus, they're astonished too. And last in Luke 2.51, after Jesus gives his response to Mary and they head back home, our passage tells us Mary treasured up 
all these things in her heart. Perhaps you might remember from last week that this actually isn't the first time we've seen Mary treasure up the things concerning Jesus in her heart. Luke 2.19, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This isn't the first time we've seen marveling in Luke, and it's not going to be the last time we see marveling in Luke. In fact, just as Luke emphasizes Jesus' mission, so too does Luke emphasize the wonder that Jesus evokes in people. I also learned that this theme in Luke occurs more in Luke than it does in other Gospels. There are at least 25 times in the book of, the, in the book of Luke where we see people amazed or astonished or in wonder or marveling or even fearing Jesus. Everywhere Jesus goes, everything Jesus does, people are confounded by him and in awe of what he's doing. We see Jesus many times when he's speaking. People are in awe. Luke 4.22 All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. People are not just amazed by what Jesus says. They're amazed by what he does. He tells Peter, cast your net on that side of the boat. I know you you haven't caught anything. They do, and the nets are breaking. And it says about Peter and his companions, they were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. Jesus healed the paralytics, the blind, the lame. He even raises people from the dead. That happens in Luke 7:15. And the dead men sat up, began to speak. Jesus gave them to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Jesus even rebukes the winds and the waves. He's sleeping on the boat. His disciples think they're going to die. They wake him up and say, Hey, Jesus, you know, we're going to die. Do something. And he's like, Okay, stop. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But he rebukes the wind and the waves, and they just... Wow. They say, who is this? He even commands the wind and the water and they obey him. Even people that don't believe in Jesus are shocked by him. The Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, Luke eleven thirty eight, the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not wash before the meal. Like, the Pharisee thinks he needs to do that. Jesus constantly acting against people's expectations. Later on, they're trying to trap him in what he's going to say. Luke 20, 26. He answers so wisely. It says they were astonished by his answer and they became silent. And later in that account, Luke 20, 40, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see, when Mary and Joseph see 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, they're astonished not because Jesus is acting out of character, but because he's acting in character. Everything Jesus says and everything Jesus does just astonishes all who see and hear him. 
There's truly never, ever been another individual like this on planet Earth. He is truly one of a kind. No one's ever caused as much commotion and awe like Jesus. We see the mission of Jesus and we see marveling at Jesus. What does this mean for us? I have just one question I want us to walk away from here today. And I hope that this stays in your mind after our sermon. When was the last time you marveled at Jesus? When was the last time you read your Bible and were amazed by what you read? Like Anna, like Anna in our passage, when was the last time that your heart was so swelling with praise at what God was doing that you just couldn't wait to go tell someone else about him? In the near future, we're going to take a look at Jesus' return to his hometown in Nazareth. And after he reads from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue there, Luke 4.22 tells us that all marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But their next response in Luke 4.22, is this not Joseph's son? And we see that they reject Jesus. And Jesus goes on to condemn their lack of belief in him and says that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Why? Their familiarity with Jesus has kept them from seeing and believing in Jesus as he really was. He truly was. I fear that more often than we like, whether consciously or unconsciously, we can react similarly to Jesus. It's easy to become permeated with church and Bible and prayer and various religious doings and responsibilities and yet fail to marvel. These are good things in themselves, and we ought to do them. Let us not let our familiarity with Jesus blind us to how stunning of an individual he is. We can become so consumed with our everyday doings that we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus' mission and instead turn them onto everyday circumstances and responsibilities. Maybe that's even what happened to Mary in our passage. She's doing the various religious things she should be doing. She went to the Passover every year. Maybe she'd become so accustomed to the previous trips to Jerusalem for Passover that she just thought, it's always going to be how it's been. We see something similar later on in Luke 10. Jesus visits the home of Martha and a different Mary, their sisters. Luke tells us that Martha was distracted with much serving, but Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him. And when Martha sees this, she accuses Jesus of not caring for her because Mary wasn't helping serve. Jesus tells Martha that she was anxious about many things, but Mary had chosen what's better. And that would not be taken from her. Brothers and sisters, spiritual routine and service are all fine things, but may they not keep us from beholding 
the beauty and wonder and glory of Christ. Maybe you're here today and maybe that's you. Maybe you have felt that your walk with the Lord has just become kind of stale. Just want to remind you this morning, Jesus is still marvelous. He's still spectacular. He's still amazing. He's still astonishing. And your present dry spell doesn't ever diminish his everlasting glory. If that's you, maybe consider doing something outside your normal routine. In preparation for this sermon, I tried to read the Gospel of Luke through as if I'd never read it before and read it as if I lived in the first century and tried to understand what it would be like for Jesus to say and do certain things in certain circumstances. So when he goes to eat with a tax collector, the chief tax collector, wow, that's amazing. That was such a helpful exercise for me. Maybe you're here and maybe you've never marveled at Jesus. Maybe your knowledge about Jesus is limited to hearsay. Perhaps you don't really know much at all about him. Or maybe the only knowledge you have of Jesus is kind of a domesticated picture of him that's solely informed by pop culture. If that's you, can I encourage you that not only is Jesus the most influential figure in human history, he's often also quite unlike what we would expect him to be. Jesus wasn't just confounding to those who didn't know him. He was just as astonishing and amazing to those that did. It would be a mistake if you felt you'd figured out who Jesus was merely by just casually hearing about him. I just encourage you, this book will show you who he is. So whether it's been some time since you've marveled at Christ or whether you've never have, I want you to know that there is good news this morning. There is actually a relationship between our two themes. The mission of Jesus and the marveling of Jesus are connected. What we see in our passage is that when people hear of what Jesus will do, like in the section with Simeon and Anna, and when people see what Jesus does, like the section in the temple, their response is to marvel at him. We see in God's word that when we see the mission of Christ, we marvel at Christ. Or to say it another way, seeing the works of Jesus results in the worship of Jesus. Or say it another way, believing the promises about Jesus leads to praising Jesus. Or to say it another way, Jesus' accomplishment is the fuel for our astonishment. One more time, I'll say another one. His achievement gives us our amazement. What God wants us to see this morning in our passage, it is pointing us in a direction. If our passage shows us the mission started and the mission in progress, what do we find when we get to the end of Luke's gospel? You see in Luke, Jesus dies on the cross. 
He raises again three days later. And after that, in the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, there are two men walking down the road to a town called Emmaus. Jesus shows up amongst them, but he conceals his identity. They don't know it's him. He pretends to not know anything about his crucifixion. And the two men are shocked to hear that this guy has not heard anything about these events. And they begin to tell Jesus what had happened. It's a little funny. Um, But then they say this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we thought he would be the one to bring salvation like Simeon prophesied. But he died, so it's over. And here Jesus' response in Luke 24, 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. Jesus shows from the entire Old Testament all that had been prophesied about him has finally been fulfilled in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's no longer a mission that started or one that's in progress. No, now this is mission accomplished. What would have seemed to be mission impossible has now left death reckoning. (laughs) That's a summer movie reference. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to. (laughs) Jesus eventually reveals himself to these two men, and when they finally recognize him, he disappears. And listen to what how they described their experience. Luke 24, 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? When Jesus showed what he was going to do and what he did, their hearts burned. His mission ignited their marveling hearts. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the next passage, Luke 24, 33. I'll read it for us. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. It's by myself. Touch and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Come to Hope Church, I have good news for you this morning. Death has been defeated. The grave has been conquered. Forgiveness is freely offered. Eternal life is secured. It is finished. Mission accomplished. What Simeon prophesied has come to pass. Salvation is secured. And we have eternal life in him. Eternal life. We will live forever with Jesus if we've received his death, burial, and resurrection. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Let me read them for you. This is speaking of Jesus' second coming. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We're going to have eternity to marvel at Jesus. I was reading at Starbucks before we came here and Psalm 36, 8. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. We will never, ever, ever exhaust the beauty and wonder of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. May his mission accomplished lead us to marvelous adoration forever. Let's pray.